Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 10 to 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Michael, three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. This Rocktail Hour is sponsored by The Trip, Gigmaster's number one cover band in the U.S. for the last four years. Find The Trip from the link on our website or at meetthetrip.com. In this Rocktail Hour, Treg is going to bring us the story behind Land Down Under by Men at Work. Treg? Thanks, Michael. This is one of those great hits from the 80s that, uh, that actually brought Vegemite to the vocabulary of Americans. Was and it? we're grateful. <laughs> we're grateful for the song, but not for the Vegemite. Not for Vegemite. Who, who's eating Vegemite? <laughs> <laughs> I've eaten it. It's nasty. Uh, so, so this uh, song, Land Down Under, was released in 1981 on Men at Work's Business as Usual album. The lyrics were written by lead singer Colin Hay. The lyrics are about an Australian traveler circling the globe, proud of his nationality, and about his interactions with the people that he meets on his travels who are interested in Australia and his home company. The verses were inspired by a character that was created by a famous Australian entertainer, and the character is called Barry McKenzie, who was a beer-swilling Australian who traveled through England and was a very larger-than-life character. So the, the character in the song is, is roughly based on this Barry McKenzie character. Hmm. Some of the lyrics are, are great. The very first lines are, Traveling in a fried-out combi on a hippie trail, head full of zombie. When I, I remember when we first listened to this song uh, in, in high school. I had no idea, head full of zombie and a, and a, and a fried-out combi. So I've learned that a fried-out combi is a broken-down van. It came from a VW combi van which was very popular in the 60s and 70s, especially with surfers and hippies. Head full of zombie refers to marijuana. Of uh, course. <laughs> everything is. If uh, you don't understand the lyrics in a rock and roll song, it's, it's about marijuana. It's a drug reference. <laughs> <laughs> so zombie was a particular strong batch of marijuana, which was floating around Australia at the time. People called it zombie grass. So then uh, the next line. Very appealing, by the way. Anything called zombie is certainly something I would want to Something take. you'd just <laughs> yeah. seek out, naturally. <laughs> so one of the following lines is, he just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich. And I remember first listening to this, and I thought, I wondered if I was hearing the lyrics right. Vegemite had no idea what that was. I always thought he was saying, gave me a bit of his sandwich. That's what I thought, Yeah, too. there you go. Yeah. All right. The Vegemite is a fermented yeast spread. Um, that is popular throughout Australia. Australians love it. You know, they eat it. Some people, it's like a morning cup of coffee. You can't uh, start the day without some Vegemite. Now, having lived in New Zealand, did you have some when you were in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah, I lived oh. in New Zealand for Ugh. a little while, and I and I did have a taste of it, and, and it was very pungent, very yeah. strong. How do you eat it? You spread it on toast or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or anything. You know, you can, some people will even take a spoonful of it. My brother lived in Australia for a while, and, and because of this song, I was dying to know what Vegemite was like. And so I asked him, please bring me home a jar of Vegemite. And he said, oh, you're going to hate it. And I said, I still want to try it. Well, I had a teaspoon of Vegemite and paid him for the jar and threw the rest away. It was, <laughs> it was highly disappointing. My uncle uh, lived in New Zealand, and I, I remember a story that he told me that uh, one of his friends there told him that Vegemite was like peanut butter. Oh, man. <laughs> so he took a big spoonful of it and stuck it into his mouth. <laughs> it made him sick. 
And we were, we were actually in New Zealand uh, a couple summers ago, and my wife uh, wanted to take a uh, take a shot at it. So it was one of these little disposable packets, and she peeled back the label, and the and the pungent smell of this fermented yeast uh, was was it really offends the nostrils to begin with. Well, then she just stuck her tongue on the tip of it, and uh, she got sick just from just from putting her tongue on it. So we're sorry for all the Australians that uh, that we are offending with this, but. I don't expect Vegemite to, to sponsor the pot Rocktail Hour anytime yeah. soon. We certainly aren't disparaging the Vegemite industry. It's just our opinion. <laughs> so that's Vegemite. Another line says, where beer does flow and men chunder. Again, this was another lyric. I have no clue what that meant, but chunder is slang in Australian for vomit. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. Something that the Australians, I guess, are famous for, or that they're proud of. They drink a lot of beer and then chunder. <laughs> So this song is, is often misinterpreted as a patriotic anthem. So Colin, who, who was the author of it, who wrote the lyrics, he says, the chorus is really about the selling of Australia in many ways, the overdevelopment of the country. It was a song about the loss of spirit in that country. It's really about the plundering of the country by greedy people. It is ultimately about celebrating the country, but not in a nationalistic way and not in a flag-waving sense. It's really more than that. And he went on to explain that it was it's more about Australia before the white people came and uh, what, a, what a beautiful, wonderful country it was before uh, so many people came and, and took advantage of the natural resources. Isn't Australia still like 90% uninhabited? I mean, have they really plundered the country? <laughs> Probably is. Yeah. It's pretty barren. Okay. I want to thank uh, my friend Linda for bringing this song to me, and, and the reason that she brought it was uh, because of a lawsuit related to the song. In 2009, the music publishing company that owns the rights to the Australian children's song called Kookaburra sued uh, the songwriter, be claiming that the flute rift in the song was ripped off of this Kookaburra song, the children's classic. It's kind of interesting the story uh, about how uh, the owners of the how the owners of the song uh, discovered this potential lawsuit. There was a game show in Australia called Spicks and Specs. It was a music trivia program, and one of the questions during the game was what rock song was based on the children's song Kookaburra. And uh, they didn't know the answer at the time, but one of the employees of Larrikin Music Publishing was listening to the game show and picked up on that. Hey, we've got a lawsuit because everybody thinks the, that the flute riff is based on Kookaburra. So they filed a lawsuit. Which blows me away that 30 years after everybody in the world knew this song... They were suing them for ripping them off. Exactly. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, it blew them away too, you know, the artists. Uh, yeah. They, they had no clue. Well, and if you listen to the song, to me it's pretty indefensible. <laughs> I think they've <laughs> used the song in their own song. So, Well, the uh, band has said that they didn't intentionally rip off uh, Kookaburra, that originally the song had no flute line in it at all, and then after they, they put the song together... Someone had an idea to, to put in this flute line, and so the, the guy who played the flute was just playing different uh, melodies to add to the song and must have come from some subconscious some memory of, of the Kookaburra song, and, and they put it in the track. Because so, it sound, I guess because it had this great Australian sound to it. Right, it'd be like putting Hickory Dickory Dock into a... <laughs> <laughs> right. So this Australian just kind of 
subconsciously thought of this famous Australian children's song to put in his own song. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So a, a decision was finally handed down um, on the underlying trial of the case in uh, February 2010, and the Australian justice ruled in favor of Larrikin Music, who owned the Kookaburra publishing rights. And oh, actually, the, the, the song was originally penned by a music teacher, Marion Sinclair, in 1932. So Kookaburra is an old song and very much associated with Australia. So in the, the judge's decision, he said that Men at Work had infringed Larrikin's copyright because Down Under reproduced a substantial part of Kookaburra. So the decision was that the band would have to pay 5% of their royalties from the song to the owner of the copyright. But because of the statute of limitations, the owner of the copyright couldn't recoup any money from before 2002. I can't imagine that that's a whopping sum since the song was really had its popularity in 1981 where it hit number one on the charts. And so, gentle listeners, that's why we do not play the songs in these podcasts. <laughs> We don't want to violate anybody's copyrights. Well, if we had to pay 5% of our royalties to somebody. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> we could handle that, I think, yeah. <laughs> so Colin Hayes said after the judgment, I'll go to my grave knowing Down Under is an original piece of work. In over 20 years, no one ever noticed the reference to Kookaburra. Marion Sinclair never made any claim that we had appropriated any part of her song, and she was alive when Down Under was a hit. And apparently, she didn't notice either. Mm. Treg, was the song a hit in Australia? I mean, certainly it was here, but it was here it seemed to be more of a hit because it was such a novelty, right? And so I, I doubt that in Australia it would, it would have that, that aspect. And so was it popular there? It, it was popular in Australia. I think it hit number one in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and in Australia. Mm. And I think one of the reasons it was so popular in Australia was because they thought it was this great nationalistic song. Um, and, and in fact, Colin Hay uh, says it's kind of like Born in the USA in that, it, like we talked about in the Born in the USA podcast, that everyone thinks that it's this great nationalistic song, and it's really, um, both songs are more a critique of, of the country and, and the way that we have misused people and resources. Although I have to say, I really like this song. I really like Men at Work. I was a fan right from the very beginning. But to compare the the critique of Australia in this song as opposed to the critique of America in Born in the USA, they are very, very different types of songs. I can read the words of Born in the USA and I can see what Bruce Springsteen is trying to say. I'm not sure I read the words of Down Land Down Under and, and see that same critique. So you know, if true. that was his intent, great, but the lyrics are not very cutting. Yeah, what, I, I understood it right away. I mean, this is about misappropriating a nation zombie. Oh, there you go. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, the first time I heard this song, I, I really enjoyed it. This was at a time period when I would have generally not liked this type of music because it didn't really fit into that um, the type of music that I'd been listening to, nor was it the type of music that would probably make me very popular among my circle of friends. But I did like the originality of Men at Work, and I have to say that of um, all of the the albums that I bought in the 80s, which would have included things like ACDC and, and Judas Priest and the Beatles, um, I did buy this album, and I really enjoyed it. And I 
always have liked Men at Work. I wish that they'd have cut more albums and, and their fame would have lasted even longer because I, I really think musically they're very good and, and they're just very entertaining. Yeah, there were a number of hits on that business oh, as yeah. usual album. Yeah, this was a big album. And I, stuff. I would have liked to have seen them in concert. Yeah. But uh, for those of us who don't remember the big hits on this album, what were they? <laughs> well, there was this song, and this is a great song, and there was Be Good, but the the best song after the album was Who Could It Be Now? And that was a really, really good song. It, it occurred to me after uh, hearing this story about the copyright infringement lawsuit, uh, it reminded me of several other famous uh, copyright lawsuits. Um, one of my favorites is Vanilla Ice. Uh, first time I heard Ice Ice Baby, uh, it was immediately apparent that Vanilla Ice just totally ripped off uh, Queen and David Bowie, their song Under Pressure. And I remember seeing an interview with Vanilla Ice where he was talking about this, and, and he says, no, uh, Under Pressure goes, dun-dun-dun-da-da-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-da-da-dun-dun. And then my song goes, dun-dun-dun-da-da-dun-dun. Yeah. <laughs> it was just I, no difference. I saw that same interview. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he just totally sampled it and ripped it right off. My understanding is that uh, Vanilla Ice settled with Queen and David Bowie over that dispute. There was also a famous lawsuit involving George Harrison. He was sued for plagiarism for his song, My Sweet Lord, because of the similarities with He's So Fine by the Chiffons. That lawsuit lasted 10 years. And in 1976, the federal district court found that George Harrison had subconsciously copied He's So Fine by the Chiffons. In 1978, before the court decided the damages on the case, and this is kind of interesting, that George Harrison's former manager, Alan Klein, purchased the copyright to the Chiffon song, and uh, which I thought was kind of, kind of creepy, you know? He sees that the decision's going to go against George Harrison, so he runs out and he buys the rights wow. to the song. So the court didn't let him get away with that. Uh, the, in 1981, the court decided the damages, which amounted to about $1.6 million dollars, but because of Klein's duplicity in the case, Harrison was only required to pay Klein $587,000, which was the amount that Klein had paid for the song. Mm. So he didn't profit from that. And he dragged that out for 10 years. So yeah. the story wow. there is don't sue a beetle. <laughs> That's right. Well, and $587,000 to George Harrison, he probably had that in his mattress. <laughs> right. So I'm sure he made a lot more than that on that song. Another interesting story is that John Fogarty was accused of plagiarizing his own song. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's an awful story. Go ahead. I hate so, this story. <laughs> the lawsuit is called Fantasy Inc. versus Fogarty. And in that lawsuit, Fantasy Inc. claimed that the old man down the road had the same chorus as Run Through the Jungle, which was a song that Fogarty uh, wrote with when he was with Creedence Clearwater Revival, and which uh, Fantasy owned the rights, the publishing rights, to... Uh, run through the jungle. So John Fogarty ultimately won the case when he proved that the two songs were wholly distinct. And then he countersued Fantasy for his attorney's fees, and he won that case. And Great. So they had to pay his attorney's fees. Can you imagine suing somebody for copying a song that they'd written? Yeah, copying their own song. I think the defense is, it just sounds like me. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Which almost every I was going to make an attorney joke there, but that was actually better. So there you go. <laughs> Almost every artist, you know, ends up having a sound of their own. And when you record two songs that sound similar, you know, I can... Yeah, that's true. So this was... Uh, yeah, w Welcome to uh, Rocktail Hour Copyright Litigation Edition. <laughs>
Thanks, Treg, for bringing us a story behind Land Down Under by Men at Work. We'd once again like to thank our sponsor, The Trip. Go to our website and click on the link for The Trip, the best rock cover band in America. Watch the promotional videos and see for yourself the amazing talent and energy that they can bring to your next holiday party, corporate event, wedding, festival, or other private party playing the greatest rock, dance, and top 40 hits from the last five decades. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting rock tale of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for Rocktail Hour. If you think we're just lame, well, please keep that to yourself. Also, please contact us if you want to buy the next round at an upcoming Rocktail Hour by becoming a sponsor. Until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. Rock on.